Her stories can be found all over 40 anthologies and magazines, and her three solo horror story collections are available right now, as is her nonfiction book, The Business of Short Stories, Writing, Submitting, Publishing, and Marketing. You can also find her as a co-host of the podcast Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. Please welcome to Slasher Sports Cinema, Shannon Lawrence. Hi, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me at this ungodly hour. I'm probably keeping you awake. Oh, no. But... <laughs> oh, no. No? I, no you... Nightlife is my time. <laughs> hey, you know, they wrote a disco song like that, and I completely agree. I'm pretty much a night owl myself. Um, I don't know the last time I saw 10 a.m. No, I try and avoid it at all costs. So, Oh, yeah, it's it's, it's a horrific time. But hey, listen, we've got a lot of fun planned today. We're going to talk about this film that is celebrating an anniversary very soon. One of the iconic horrors, uh, your favorite I feel like, horror. Let's see, a little hint. Hey, <laughs> see, I love it. I usually don't collect a lot of items, but I had to had to yank this Friday the Thirteenth figure off the shelf. Um, Nice little Jason figure. So, yeah, actually I got it for my kid and I just ripped it off of him. But, uh, but hey, it fits the aesthetic with Buddha and my Fangoria and the Crystal Lake sign. It's just, you know, we kind of balance out our little workspaces with murdery things. Oh, yeah. And it's never weird for, you know, <laughs> my, 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 uh, my, my team's meetings. Well, because I work from home, so it's never weird for those guys, right? As as do I. And yeah, they're just accustomed to it. Now, every little once in a while, if I sit at a different angle, because I have all these windows at the front, and then I have French doors behind me, which is a great aesthetic when you're not trying to be on video. <laughs> but what is that behind you? Is that is that a skull on the shelf? Did... <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's her. Is it real? <laughs> no, I should say yes. You, well, at least once to get the reaction. That way we know whether we need to say it again, right? If, if it's a joke we want to keep going back to, or if it just needs to, you know, die on the stage. That's, you kind of kind of have to do that, you know, to test out the, uh, test the waters a little bit. So tell me, Shannon, why do you write short stories? Because I have a short attention span. <laughs> okay, well, really, they're... I just really enjoy the short form. I think with horror, it can be especially impactful. And a lot of movies are actually made from short stories instead of novels as well, because you're packing everything in there and you're not putting in all that added filler that you see in a novel. So, but I really do also have a short attention span. So it's, it pays off a lot faster than a novel. I mean, it takes two years for once it's written and somebody accepts it for a novel to come out. Whereas if I sell a short story to a magazine, it might be out in a month. And I think the longest I ever waited for a publication after acceptance was about a year and a half. And that was for a big magazine. So you put up, you're like, all right, I'll take it for that. <laughs> you know, I've found myself lately. Um, and I say lately, maybe over the last six months. Consuming more short media. And I do mean short film, short stories. Um, I love a good feature length film, you know, 90 minutes, two hours hell even two and a half hours but 
there's just something different. And and I believe the horror genre does this more than any other genre. And that is in film, at least the cold open. Yeah. And the cold open to me, I'm listen, I'm nobody to criticize. I'm nobody to critique, nor do I fancy myself a Roger Ebert, but I always felt if I can take the cold open of a film and watch it on its own as a, uh, as a standalone, mm-hmm. then it's a good cold open. And I think about the examples of maybe um, when a stranger calls, that oh, is yeah. the, that is the ultimate cold open for a horror film. It gets no better. That's and just the an way excellent it, film in its entirety. Its so <laughs> it, it is, you're right. Yeah. And, and that cold open is just, just a masterpiece. If, if they were to release that as a cold open or as a, a short film, it's, it's still a perfect film. It's still perfect. Right. And you know what? They could be putting that out if they were smart on YouTube. You know, so the opening of Ghost Ship for a movie, that's not great. The opening is phenomenal, right? If they just have that out there on YouTube, they get so many people watching the movie. Nearly iconic opening. Yeah. People always ask, you know, you see these uh, these shallow questions, you know, what was the greatest opening scene in a film? You're always going to see a handful of Ghost Ship. Oh yeah, always. And whether it's a horror group or not, it, it right? Could be just, I mean, you know, it makes an impact. <laughs> you know what you're getting and into immediately. Immediately. So you mentioned um, sometimes a long turnaround time mm-hmm. on you know, just the, the accepting of your writing. Um, what should people know about submitting short stories? So. They first of all, they should know that they're probably going to get a lot of rejections, and that's okay because it means you're working the business. You know, you're doing it. Because a lot of people say I want to write, and they don't write. And a lot of people say they want to write, and they write a little, but they never submit it. And if you don't submit it, it can't go anywhere. So that's kind of the number one thing: is go in knowing you're going to get rejections, and it's not personal. It's it's not even saying the story is bad unless somebody responds to you and says the story is bad, which is I'm. 99% is not going to happen. I can't speak for everybody, you know, in terms of sometimes there's a nasty editor, who knows? But yeah, you just have to keep going. You have to keep pushing it out. And if you get a rejection, you should already know where you want to send it next. So that's one of the big things. Just keep doing it and working it. You mentioned that some people say they want to write and they just never write. Mm-hmm. How did you get started? What, what motivated you to put pen to paper? You know, I, I had many false starts. So I think even back in the, let's see, the early 2000s or so, when I was in my late 20s, probably, I even sent to two magazines. And at that point, the only option was to mail it and then wait forever. And then they'd mail it back. And your rejection, which is all I got then. But I only sent two stories out, I think, or maybe three. But um, I totally just lost my train of thought there. <laughs> but Well, it's funny you say that. Well, you send like a just a hard letter. And yeah. that's like a, a month. It's probably two weeks before it touches anybody's hands. Especially because then... it's a packet, right? So <laughs> it's just however long that takes. But right. now it's all email, mostly email. And then also they have uh, 
software that a lot of them use and you just submit it right through their form. So it's pretty fast turnaround for most. Just but again, there are rejection. some stories that'll be out for a year, maybe. So there, there's, it's a whole process for oh, yeah. somebody wanting to get into writing. Like it's just not as simple as sit down, find your space, find your motivation and get to hacking. It, there's, you know, the, the whole business side of it as well. Um, I mean, I myself would like to, I'd like to say I want to write, but I know that going through the process of writing is, I mean, you said you have a short attention span. I've got a short attention span and that's probably why I'm more drawn to short stories. Yeah. And, and, and I do feel like today's, gosh, I don't want to sound like a, like an old man shaking my fist at the clouds, but I do think today's damn generation does have that shorter attention span and it's just so easy to not watch a film and start scrolling through your short form factor videos on TikTok and Instagram and wherever else you're going to consume them. Right. I mean, that's the first thing you learn in marketing right now really is that you've got to have a hook and it's got to catch people right away. And that's true for writing too. You have to have a hook and it's got to catch people. A short story has to catch people faster because people will give it less time before they're like nah and moving on. So you have to jump in. Speaking of cold opens, right? A lot of time you have to jump in, but you also have to figure out how to build a character and make people care about them first. Because if they, if you don't care in any horror movie, you don't care if they die. And if it's a bad character, you're rooting for them to die. Or maybe that's just me, but <laughs> that's what you have to watch for. So I don't know. I, I think and it's something I was going to bring up a little bit later. I think that's something that we do. And it's no different with slasher films. Just think about the backlash of how Halloween ends ended. And a large reason for that is because of the treatment of what most people, or what a lot of people anyway, consider like the guy. Like Michael Myers was never supposed to be the guy in Halloween. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was supposed to be the gal <laughs> in Halloween. But somewhere there was a shift and who we root for in these films. And you're right. Those short stories, or the, the, the cold opens, rather, are where the hook is. And whether it's instilling the fear of what you're supposed to worry about for the duration of this film, or whether you're supposed to get behind the, the main character, that cold open is pivotal to horror. And I think that's why... Uh, it's so utilized because no other genre uses the cold open like that. No. And horror fans too. Yeah. They want to know that they're getting into something again, short attention span, right? If this doesn't look interesting to me, well then I'm not going to stick around because it's not going to scare me or it's not going to thrill me or whatever it is you're going for. Fact. And a lot of the, the filmmakers I've spoken to lately have, they've kind of branched out of the short story they created. Um, actually, th there's a big film called Piggy. It's just kind of new uh, out of Spain. I'm, I'm going to send you a link to this. Yeah. Um, but it's called Piggy. And um, I am blanking on the director's name. Carlota something. And well, either way, she had um, a short film called Cerdita or Cerda. Either way, it's, I think it's Cerdita, but it's Piggy in Spanish. And it's basically a reshot version of 
the open, the cold open from Piggy. And you just kind of see how, hey, this kind of took off. So maybe I've got a little bit bigger of a budget. Yes. To to work with and make a feature length film. And it was, both were excellent. I could have lived had they never made a feature film, but I'm glad they did. Right. As long as it's entertaining afterwards, like, there's a lot of things we could live without, but it's more fun well, just, <laughs> to have them we, around. We were talking about uh, When a Stranger Calls. Just yes. think of what they did in 2000 and um, it was, was like it? Nine 2000? Or... Yeah, it feels like the almost into the 2010s. Um, they, they had that remake, but it wasn't anything like the original. They took the cold open from the original and made it a feature link just to show you how strong that cold open was in uh, 80. 79, 84. Isn't I don't know. I just looked at yeah, it recently too. Yeah. I need to do that again uh, because it's such an excellent film, but I have to know um, you. Uh, yeah, I brought up this uh, Spanish film, uh, Cerdita and, and Piggy. Uh, are you still on your language learning journey? Oh yeah. <laughs> I've been doing Duolingo. I'm on like, <laughs> Day 279, I think. You've got a ridiculous one. streak going. Yes. <laughs> I'm so, so happy about that. And that's Spanish, right? Yeah, that's Spanish. And I knew some Spanish. I learned it. I absorbed it as a kid in the area I mm-hmm. lived. There were a lot of Spanish speakers. And then you don't use it and it goes away. And then I took it in high school. So, yeah, there were there were some things... I already made those synaptic connections, I think, which really helps. But I would love to be actually bilingual at some point, you know. And you will be. And there's going to be a time when you have a dream in Spanish and you'll wake up and you'll be like, by God, I've got it. Yes. Really, I've hit the really point happy. where it's like when I say something or I'll see something, read it. And then in my head, I start translating it into Spanish, what it would be. And I'm like, OK, well, that's <laughs> that's fine. Sometimes but that's an excellent practice. Yeah. It really is, though, because I'm like, what don't I know yet, then? Once you get that grammar down. What's that? See, there you go. Once you get the grammar down, it's just Mm -hmm. vocabulary building. Right. And then it's just finding those words. And a lot of the time, you can build around to what you want to say without knowing a specific word, as long as you can get the point across. So that's, that's hopeful for if I go traveling somewhere where they speak Spanish. Well, I think you're going to get it. You know, you, you've been, I mean, that's, a, first of all, a massive streak. Uh, oh, yeah. You, you, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to knock that out. And are, are you retaining everything well? Yeah. So it is, it is, there's a couple things because Duolingo, if anybody's done that, they don't really explain it. And so you're learning it just by doing it. So they don't explain why you're suddenly using this verb form, but you figure it out kind of through doing. And I've seen that. I saw that with a program my kids both had to use in elementary school for math. That's just how they teach now. It's like, you'll figure it out and then you'll make the connections and then it stays in there better. So they do a lot of that. Well, I hate to bring, I bring this thought process up maybe once every like 10 episodes, but I'm going to bring it up today. And it's like the four levels of understanding. And this is something I got from, basically my sales mentor. Okay. His name is Brian Flanagan. I'm going to shout him out every time I say it. Brian Flanagan is a badass. Okay. And he taught 
the four levels of understanding. The very first level would be unconscious incompetence. Okay. And that means you don't know what you don't know, and you don't even know which questions to ask to understand. Mm-hmm. And, and then you make that jump to conscious incompetence, still meaning you don't know, but at least now you know what to ask and how to understand it. Right. Okay. And then the third step is conscious competence. It means, you know what? I know what's going on and I know why. I know what steps I took to get here to understand what I'm doing. And then that fourth step is the one that you kind of want to perform at. It's unconscious competence, meaning I know what I'm doing, but I can't tell you why. I'm just really good at it. And it's the difference. And I don't want to like inundate you with baseball talk here, but (laughs) It's the difference between a classic, uh, classic guys like Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams, where Ted Williams was like the best hitter in the world. But if he got in a slump, he could back up, figure out what was going wrong and get back in the batter's box and do well. Whereas Mickey Mantle, uh, bless his little heart, he'd get in a slump and he'd have to just basically hit himself out of it because he couldn't coach himself. Okay. You're going to get to the point in Spanish where you might not know but you know which questions to ask and you know the context of, of the conversation. You're going to be like, you know what? I think he just told me I need to go right at the stop sign. So that's right. I also, I already know I made sure I made a point of knowing how to say, to, to ask him to say it slower, please. <laughs> say it slower, please. <laughs> that should be the first thing, but you know, it, it's a good thing that Duolingo does that because I mean, I've also been doing uh, Duolingo with uh, just other languages, but in in anything, I want to be taught from the beginning as if I'm a child trying to absorb something. And what do you do when, you know, you give some, I don't know, Lincoln logs to your little toddler? You just pour them out on the floor and let them go to town with it, right? You don't, yeah. if you show them the formula, they will only ever use your formula. They won't ever figure it out themselves. And I think this is a perfect way to do it. And I'm, I'm anybody who's trying to learn a language. Duolingo is the best, I maybe the it. second best next to Babbel. I think Babbel might be the more constructed language learning software, but I'm down with Duolingo. It's free. It's got, it's got cartoons and it's free. <laughs> Who doesn't want cartoons when you're learning a language? And right? they tell you what a good job you're doing. It's great need that reinforcement need but you do they really do encourage you and you get like five you got five in a row right you got 10 in a row right and you're like yeah i did i may be in my I... mid-40s but yeah i did <laughs> i got this many <laughs> give me a gold star please <laughs> the important part is if i were to drop you in the middle of mexico could you live for a week and then navigate your way back i'm pretty sure i could yeah i could get Good. food and i could find a bathroom <laughs> You're damn right you could. So there we go. You know, that's the basis. Shannon, tell me about your podcast, please. Okay. So the podcast is Mysteries, Monsters, and Mayhem. And that mayhem kind of gives us license. But I co- my co-host is MB Partlow, and we're both authors. She writes more urban fantasy. I write more horror. But we cover crimes and you know, serial killers, but also other true crimes like her favorite, because she's not a true crime junkie like I was already, are axe murders and like turn of the century axe and hatchet murders. And she does goofy ones too. So we kind of mix it up. I tend to be the more serious, like 
all right, uh, you know, trigger warning on my subject matter, but she's going to tell you about the great maple syrup heist. So we mix it up. <laughs> but we also do like, we do cryptozoological creatures, for example, and we do sometimes UFO sightings and paranormal stuff. But the mayhem is what gives us license to be like, this is just something I want to talk about that was interesting and it doesn't qualify for the rest of the things. So we have a lot of fun with that. You know, when when we nailed down our date tonight, I was going to invite my best friend, but I didn't want to like impose. And he's going to be like, a, he was asleep three hours ago. He's that kind of guy, <laughs> but he's, um, he's very much the guy who, if there's anything that goes on in the backwoods of, you know, Tennessee is like, see Bill, I told you he's real. <laughs> Whoever it is, he is. It could be right. Sasquatch. It could be the the dog man from wherever the hell he's from. He is waist deep, and he would absolutely love you. I love and that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you do. I'm glad you do. <laughs> I have a friend who's actually a cryptozoologist, and he's published author as well. And I'm like, hey, that totally legitimizes everything. All you need is, see, it's like Duolingo. You get that reinforcement. You get that reinforcement and you have all the ammo you need. That's kind of one of the things that I tell people horror is good for. Because I'm like, see, you have this fear and people tell you it's irrational, but it just happened in this movie or this story. And so you can be like, face. (laughs) Like, look at this. It could happen. I, I avoid sending him the same stories because he'll take it as like, me groveling and saying well okay i admit it now james it's real you can go on about your business so i don't i don't want to feed into that you know i don't want to i don't want to give him any more ammunition than he already has you don't want to encourage him too much not at all because he is susceptible to it now you brought up true crime i have to know like what's the most I, i i guess what's the case you've been the most obsessed with because I have an answer for that as well. Oh, okay. Well, I'm trying to think there was one, it's a smaller case. And now I can't think of his last name off the top of my head. When I was about three years old, I was in the car with my mom when a now imprisoned serial killer came after her. His MO was running a woman off the road and then getting out and offering assistance. Right. So she'd get out and trust him. And then he'd kill her. I think his last victim was a pizza delivery girl. And this was in Salem, Oregon and thereabouts. So his name is, I swear it's like William Scott Smith or something. I always forget because growing up when she started telling me about what had happened with him, she just called him Scotty because he was a little brother of one of her friends. So she just oh, knew him as God. Scotty. It took me forever to find him and send it to her and be like, is this him? Of course, I'm all into it. And she's like, yeah, and I'd rather not ever hear about him again. Thank you. <laughs> but so that's she, a real trauma. Yeah. And of course, I have no memory of it. But for her, he had been giving doing phone calls, which was part of his MO as well. It just, you know, breathing and threatening and stuff like that on the phone. And then... She was on her way out to my grandma's and my grandma had a farm in Turner, Oregon, which isn't far from Salem. And she luckily just knew it, knew that area. And he didn't. And how she got away from him because he was trying to bump her off the road is she got ahead of him far enough around the curbs that she was able to pull up somebody's, you know, dirt gravel driveway or whatever and get out of sight and turn off the lights and everything and wait. And he didn't see her and he passed. And then there was one more victim after her, but that one 
I was able to assure her because she always felt like it was her fault. This other person died, but it wasn't the same day. It was much later. And it turned out he'd planned that one with a friend. So it had nothing to do with her, but yeah, that's, so he was personal interest. First of all, hunting him down, which turned out not to be actually that hard, but only knowing Scott, uh, which turned out to be his middle name and where he did it and the pizza thing. So that's how I tracked him down. Well, that's very personal. Yeah. Of of course, that's going to be your number one. That's the wildest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) My mind just seems completely. No, tell me. (laughs) I should have said mine first (laughs) now that I think about it. Well, it's it's that recent, uh, the kid that recently got out of prison uh, over in Maryland, the Adnan Syed guy. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, the subject of the uh, the serial podcast. Um, there was so much that you know. I probably listened to that Sarah Koenig uh, podcast a handful of times, if not more, because I could never understand why so many people went to bat for him. Mm-hmm. There were so many inconsistencies with him, and in order to to say that he's innocent you have to basically say this other guy um i can't think of his name now uh but the friend who helped him bury the body like you have to be saying that he is lying about all of it then Mm -hmm. if it didn't happen then that means he knows so much more and since they didn't come to that conclusion then what is the defense there's no way that neither one of them had any had nothing to do with it right it just blew my mind that he got out of prison for, for this murder. And it was just recently, just weeks ago now that he's out. And I, I can't, I, I can't wrap my mind around it. Like what could they have possibly gotten to, to set him free? And the only thing that I can think of was the defense being weak because his, um, uh, the Gutierrez lady, she had been, um, you know, she had that terminal, uh, sickness i can't remember what was wrong with her it might have been cancer i don't know but she christina gutierrez um was his defense lawyer and maybe they thought that she put up just a bad defense and it comes down to that a lot with these guys though if there's any little loophole in how they were defended then they get off despite that doesn't prove they didn't do it and nobody thinks they didn't do it but because the defense wasn't where it needed to be then they're just out to do it again because they will do it again you know like uh-huh. <laughs> most of them will so yeah and i don't know the wild thing about that is like it could be something as simple as there being a key witness that was never called mm-hmm. and there's the defense to say well hey uh, they didn't give me a proper defense because here's clearly somebody who has been writing me letters and they never called this person and why would they have not done that? I don't know. Well, because they only wanted to give me a half-assed defense. Um, They're anti middle Eastern or whatever it is that they can pin on somebody to, you know, get this guy out. Like they might've been able to show bias or something like that too. Yeah. I I think it was revolving around the sickness of the defense lawyer because she did pass away shortly after Um, and, and it's, I think they're pointing at possibly not putting forth her best effort because she knew that she didn't have a lot of time left 
So it was just kind of like, you know, throwing her hands up. Hey, I'm going to run through the motions. And if you don't, if you don't make it, then, oh, well, but wild case it's one I'll probably listen to another five times before, you know, the, the next 10 years are up, but <laughs> I definitely need to quite... check out that one, the serial podcast. Yeah. I, I think that was probably the first podcast that I ever really listened to, uh, you know, front to back. And yeah. it probably got me into wanting to listen to more podcasts. Um, but yeah, I was never into the true crime podcast other than that one. There was some uh, like the sword and the scale that people um, suggested. I could just never get into it. Maybe there's something about Sarah Koenig's voice that was kind of comforting that, you know, let me work a, an eight hour day and have my podcast in and just enjoy a work day that maybe I just kept going back to it. I don't know. They, they say there's something about uh, people who watch reruns all the time who uh-huh. are just comfort. doing it. Exactly. So it's a comfort thing. I don't, I don't have to worry about any surprises. I know exactly what's going to happen and I can turn off the TV and go to sleep. Yeah. I don't have to worry about new characters. <laughs> but that's true. It is. It's familiarity and comfort. Then I don't have to think about this or worry about what comes next. Cause I know it. I just, I think it's funny. I feel like everybody has to have a gateway podcast <laughs> like, because I couldn't listen to them before again, short attention span. And I can live. There's nobody whose eyes I'm meeting. There's, there's no direct thing like that. And then I finally listened, discovered my favorite murder as a true crime podcast and found if I play games on my phone, I can listen to a podcast or if I listen to it when I'm making dinner, I still can't just sit and listen to one though, which is I terrible can't to say as a podcaster, but it's, I did it's, find it's not though. It's not though, because if you think about it, like who's really sitting and doing only one thing, lunatics, I don't think many that's people. who, yeah. psychos think- is who, <laughs> that's right. psychopaths who can focus on one thing and not do anything else. Yeah, Please I don't remember the last time I just watched like. a movie. <laughs> no, well, exactly. If if I'm watching a movie, I have to force myself to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I consciously take this effort to say, you know what? I have to review this film. I don't have to. Nobody's asking me to do it. Yeah. But but I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give this film the full attention that it deserves. And if I have a friend who's made an indie film, I'm going to watch it twice. I'm going to watch it once as a fan, once as a viewer that they, that they set out for me to do. And then I'm going to try to do the service and watch it again as an analyst. Uh, if I could church it up and say that I'm even analyzing. Right. Yeah. But, but with a, a podcast, there are so many different things that you can do. Um, reading a book. I don't know who does that in 2022, but I'm glad <laughs> they do. I'm I glad do it. They do. I have to do it in order to sleep. So there's that. See, there's so much wrong with you. And I, I knew there was. That's why you're here. That's right. Well, I'm glad, though, because I mean, if, without this chemical imbalance in your brain, we wouldn't have this excellent film to talk about. Now, would That's we? Right. We wouldn't have this common ground. Without and, Craven's uh, chemical imbalance as well. That, too. That, that, <laughs> that, is, a, that is a big help. Um, first off, do you have any general feelings towards slasher films in general? I, you know what? I like a slasher film. It is, they're probably, even if you watch a new slasher, it's it's that comfort watch like we were talking about because you kind of know the beats, right? At this point, yes. you know the beats. And so you know kind of what you're going to expect. And there is a comfort level in that, which 
and you're hoping that they throw they throw something in there that really disturbs you or grosses you out or you know the those best new kills like like there was a scene in Midnight Meat Train where he his own eyes he sees in the puddle of blood below him his eye going down and everything and I was like yeah that's what I watch this stuff for is <laughs> him watching his own demise with his detached eyeball or whatever but. <laughs> <laughs> that's now that's not a slasher but yeah i just i feel like they're they are they're a comfort watch and you get to see new and creative kills and and you don't have to think about it no it's not a brain exercise no i watch those when i'm in the mood i watch foreign films sometimes i watch the deep thinky ones but i really have to be in the mood and able to watch those a slasher i can put on no matter what i'm doing admit that i am not a big fan of dario argento Okay. okay. And I just want to get that out there just in case, you know, you're a big fan or maybe you agree. I don't know. But like, th- it seems like there's always, for those who know who he is, there's always a, a polar reaction, a polarizing reaction rather. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, I can't stand his films or I absolutely love them. And I think part of that is because nobody wants to be caught lacking. Okay. <laughs> And Dario Argento is kind of the guy to see when it comes to giallo film. Yeah. And the closest thing that we really have to a definition of giallo would be like film noir. And that's not really accurate either, but it's as close as we're going to get. Now, I feel like elevated horror has become one of those buzzwords for the thinky type people. Mm -hmm. And since there is that elevated, I guess center of his films saying that you don't like our argento films is like saying i'm an idiot and i don't right that's how somebody will spin it you don't like this well you're just not smart enough to get it you just don't (laughs) get it that's you just don't get it but i did just see dark glasses see i haven't watched that yet but i saw it's on there i'm gonna i'm gonna hush about it i'm gonna hush about it i will say it is my favorite Argento film. Really? Yeah, to date. Now, that comes from somebody who is a big fan of slashers, okay? Um, that's kind of like my first, you know, my, my first delve into horror was sneaking and watching Friday the 13th Part 2 when my parents were away on date night um, at like four years old. So <laughs> it's not something that I suggest to anybody to do. I don't say sit your four-year-old down and make them suffer through the scariest moments of their lives. But, but that's what I did to get into it. And that's why I love slashers. And this film does feel like a slasher. Now, when it comes to slashers, a lot of it can be mindless. And I'm thinking about a film such as terrifier or terrifier two, which is out right now. Have you seen either, either of those? I recently watched Terrifier for the first time. No, yeah, I've seen Terrifier. Sorry, I just got it mixed up with Terrified, which is a Spanish film I just watched on Shudder. But uh, yeah, Terrifier I've seen. Love him. (laughs) So Terrifier 2, brand new film. I still have not seen. uh, I've heard really good things. Excellent things about it. But what you were just saying about there's always going to be that one scene that just completely disturbs you yet somehow lets you sleep like a baby later on the scene where he's got the girl upside down and he's just sawing away looking back 
And like, uh, I mean, he didn't have any issues, you know, getting that cut started because he's already got a place to put it. And that's, that's just right. in my, in my mind, I'm like, it's the first time I've cringed. Oh yeah. Now that time. I think I, that scene gets anybody who's not a, again, a psychopath. And then they did it in bone tomahawk. Here's something interesting. I just watched, I think it was called alone in the dark. Cause it popped up on shutter. I love shutter. And, uh, for anybody who doesn't know the station, it's like a TV station that you can stream, but it has Donald Pleasance and, oh no, I can picture Martin Landau and Jack Palance in it. And they actually, it opens with a scene where somebody's having a nightmare and now they don't show it like they do in Bone Tomahawk and Terrifier. But I was like, they totally, somebody totally got the idea from that for those newer ones for Terrifier. They saw that and went, I can do that better. Without but it's a got a guy hanging up there and he comes up with the meat cleaver. And, you know, they just put that on Shudder. It's it's only been on there for a couple of weeks now. So if if you have Shudder, now's the time to get to it. Uh, excellent film. I've never been a huge Jack Palance fan. Uh, I, I think because he was my least favorite Dracula. Oh, okay. Yeah, but Donald Pleasance, fantastic. Landau, fantastic. That alone is a fantastic film. I like what I said. I always loved Jack Palance, and I'm trying to remember was he on? It was like Ripley's Believe It or Not, a TV show, and that's why I loved him because he was that breathy voice introducing all these freaky things. So see, it depended where you started. With a voice, yes, it, yes. it, it really it, it's that question. Like, hey, uh, it, it, can we be friends? Okay, let's find out. What do you think of when you think of Tim Curry? Right, people. That, that's oh, yes. always the, the barometer, right? It's like, well, if it's Clue, okay, you're kind of a brainy kid. Okay, if it was it, then you're a creepazoid, and we can hang out. Um, if it was Rocky Horror, then we're probably going to be best friends. Right? <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the thing. It just depends on where you saw Jack Palance, and if you saw him in City City Slickers, then hell, yeah. you're going to love him. But the first yep. place I actually saw him was a Batman, and it just wasn't a very savory role for that's him. Right. Yeah, eighty nine right. Batman, but uh, when I when I did backtrack, I saw like of all the Draculas, he just looked. He actually looks the most unique, and I like my Dracula to be a very plain guy, a very svelte guy. But um, yeah, Palace just looked a little bit too unique for me. Okay, but the voice works. The voice works. He does. He has a great voice, and so it really works and stuff. But I don't think I saw him as Dracula, and I think that that was on Shutter maybe within the last year, and I didn't. It might still be on there, and I didn't get a chance to watch it. But I think I was also wary of watching it because I was like, Jimmy. "He's a little campy, right?" And so I'm like, "How would that come across with Dracula?" I would expect like some of Curly's lines from City Slickers to <laughs> to be with Dracula, but yeah, it's, it's... this one thing that I crave. <laughs> <laughs> that one it's thing, blood, it's, it's blood. blood. I, I was going there. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> well, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street actually uh, saved New Line Cinema. Okay. Yeah, and like it was on the brink of bankruptcy, and this film alone. It's it's New Line Cinema is dubbed the house that that Freddie built, and it's for that reason it was all but gone until this until this film. But Wes Craven first came up with you know the basic idea for the movie uh, from some articles in the L.A. Times um, about this group of refugees, and they were. I yeah. want to. Do you know the story? Yeah, 
I, I'm trying to remember like what they called it, but it was the the kids were what basically dying in their sleep, and they thought it was like dying in their sleep from fear, and they were calling it this right. mysterious sleeping death or something like that. Yeah, it's like unexpected death syndrome. Yeah, or, or suds. I don't know what the first word is. Maybe sudden. Yeah, sudden probably. unexpected death syndrome. I think that sounds right. Um, but there's a whole other syndrome as well. But yeah, they were, I mean, these people were, they weren't sleeping. So they were probably dying of exhaustion, uh, among other things. And of course, the demons in their dreams. But that's, you know, totally <laughs> escapable. But yeah, they, these guys were, you know, here as refugees, they'd come to get away from the, their just terroristic leader. Uh, I can't remember exactly. Real life I'm, nightmares. Real life nightmares. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, they were they would just refuse to sleep, and that's where this film, or at least the premise of the terror, comes from in A Nightmare on Elm Street. But in the original script, you know, you go back to the original script of Nightmare on Elm Street, and Freddy was even worse than a serial killer. He was uh, a he pedophile. Was, you know, <laughs> he was he was a he was a pedophile. Um, and they finally decided to take that away and just make him a regular old child murderer because that's, that's the only way we can accept him. And, you know, of course they're also going to kind of avoid some accusations of like exploiting some, you know, child molestations in like over on the West coast. Um, but they, they put this back in, in the 2010 remake. Yeah, old, old Jackie Earl Haley was full blown pedophile in in this film, and like I think I liked it better without. <laughs> um, you know, in in the year, this is what I was coming back to. We, we root for the bad guys now, right? But in the year of our Dolly Parton twenty and twenty two, we <laughs> like to root for the bad guys, okay? And we're already treading on thin ice, rooting for serial killers in these films. So I don't think there's any coming back from rooting for a child molester. I'm, no, what, no, that's yeah. pushing it too far for the vast majority of people. <laughs> far too far. And it's so unnecessary. So unnecessary. But the inspiration for the character, Freddy, came from a few different sources in Craven's childhood, right? Uh, he had basically a, a bully, a childhood bully, uh, whose name was Fred Krueger. Um, and he, he used uh, the, the the name Krug in the Last House on the Left as well. Yeah. Um, so th that's something that I didn't actually know until probably it was probably when that 2010 remake came out. But yeah, he's pulling stuff from his whole entire uh, life. Craven is, and you know the the burns on on Freddie's face. I mean, this is something that, that comes from his uh, childhood as well. He he knew a guy. There was a, a man who had severe burn scars um, who scared Craven as a kid. And then there's like the, the dirty clothes and the hat. Um, there was this um, the, uh, homeless guy that Craven saw staring at him through a window one time when he was a kid. Yikes. <laughs> so, so this nightmare thing is 1000% legit from Craven. There, there's, there's not a lot of fiction uh, other than the blending of all these childhood, I guess, 
Yeah, talk about villains. his own catharsis in making this, right? You said it. You said it. Were you were you ever bullied as a kid or as a teenager? You know, or, I have, or were you a bully? I, no. <laughs> Strike me as a bully. Oh no, no I got I got dealt with it because I moved a lot. I was always the new person. The so new no matter what, you were gonna get that. And yeah. it was the worst place was really the last part of middle school and high school for me because I learned my parents scraped and scraped because of I lived in a place that was not safe before up until through sixth grade. And so they did everything they could to get us out of there. And that's how we ended up in Colorado Springs because it was seen as a very safe place. And so they moved me here and they scraped and they basically were house poor to get us into this neighborhood. So we go to what they were saying was the best district and the safest district when we moved here. And Therefore, I was the poor kid in the yuppiest of all high schools. And the the clicks were really bad there. So like you say the name of this high school locally and people are like, no, sorry for you. (laughs) So it was it was universally known. So I dealt with stuff there. And at a time when kids were probably the most... uh... I guess, standoffish towards their parents and wanting to be rebellious. It's just a wrong time to be the new kid, uh, the, the poorest kid in a rich, affluent uh, you know, location, I guess. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, Yard sale clothes don't bullies. go far. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'd like to say I didn't have any bullies. Um, I was, you know, an athlete for the majority of you know, my childhood and teen years. So that kind of gets you cool points with everybody. Um, but also kept my nose clean. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't go looking for it, yeah. but yeah, this is a, uh, there's a whole other, whole other podcast there. That's a, I think that's a mental <laughs> there's health movies podcast. About that. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty of them. So let's talk about the cast for a little bit, like almost okay. synonymous with the genre, you know, the slasher genre as, as much as our masked or in this case, burnt killer, is the uh, you know the proverbial final girl? Oh yeah, uh, and, she's and, one of the best ones still. Dare she I doesn't say? Just, yeah, she doesn't just get get. She's not on the defensive like a final girl usually is. She flips it and she's like, "I'm gonna get them. I'm gonna pull them in here. <laughs> so you need to be awake and you need to get him when he comes in here." <laughs> and if you go to sleep, I'm gonna slap you in the face, Johnny Depp. That's that's right. Know, just, she's like just a jerk. fact. And honestly, so, was he narcoleptic? Because he falls asleep every time she tells him not to fall asleep. He falls asleep like I fall asleep at 40. And <laughs> he he's what, 17 at the at the, right. at the most? But dare I say, Heather Langenkamp cemented herself in the upper echelon of final girls. Okay. Yes. So, so where does Nancy rank for you all-time final girls? Honestly, for me, she's either first or second with then somebody who's really a playoff of her, right? Which is Sydney and Scream. But she's got to be up there because, again, I love that she goes on the defensive and she's like, well, the adults suck and my friends suck and I'm just going to take care of this. <laughs> she just, I've got to do no it. no matter of fact. And for me, she's top five and she ain't number five, you know? Uh-huh. Like, Who's for your me, number one? Number one is Jenny from Friday the 13th part two. She was the, like, she was the one that was a child psychologist and kind of used, there's a little preface in uh, the earlier part of the film where she's saying something like, 
well, maybe Jason's just, you know, in his mind, still a child and he's looking for his mother and she kind of, you know, sets up the seeds, but you don't really notice it because it's so subtle uh, where at the end of the film, when she puts on uh, Pamela's sweater and hides the machete behind her back and speaks to Jason as if, you know, she's his mother, that's some brainy shit. And it's, yeah. it's really good. And I guess that's probably why. And it's so weird because you want to think, you know, for a, for a testosterone filled teenager that like the hot ones would be the favorites, but Jenny was just plain Jane and that's what made her great. Well, but I think so if you watch Gilligan, you talk to people about Gilligan's Island, for example, maybe that's a really dated reference, but it's not ginger. Everybody was into. That's a fact. It was the little farm girl that was supposed to be playing next to her. So I think Mary Ann. Uh huh. I think there's something there. I don't think it always has to be the hottest one, you know? Yeah, I think it's uh, a a lot of people want what they're not surrounded by. And and honestly, though, I think at the time, tall and thin was in vogue. And Dawn Wells was not tall and thin. Uh, She was medium height and and curvy. And that just wasn't in at the time. And then along came like Thelma on Good Times. And like, even in her best apple bottom days, <laughs> like she was probably the the hottest one on TV amongst the male audience that never, ever got talked about. Hmm. You, you think yeah. about the stars from you know the late seventies and the eighties and like, who were the it girls at the time? And very few are going to say anything about Bernadette Stannis, but Good Times was was great because of two people, JJ and Thelma. Mm-hmm. And that's just, a, I, I guess, the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. You know what? I totally left Ripley off, and she's probably my number one. So I screwed that up, huh? Well, no, <laughs> Ripley ought to be my number one, because she's still but you know, away. She, well, she is. But at the same time, like, I think about the final girl being the victim that made it. Yeah. And it could totally not even be true. But Ripley is an aggressor. Like she's like, there's a a term that, you know, my mom uses that I might have to. No, I'm not. I'm just going to say it. Like she's not a do nothing bitch. (laughs) Like Ripley is getting after it. It's yeah. it's hard to make her a final girl, but hell, I mean, we don't lose any cool points for calling her one. I feel she's, like she is in the first one, and then after that, it's really that's when she gets super. Yeah, I'm gonna take care of this again. But see, I love that. Think? I mean, like the I'm gonna take care of it. It's okay if you guys can't do anything about it. But in the first one, she's she's getting her ass handed to her, really. So. <laughs> Yeah, the entire yeah, the entire team is basically and yeah. then it takes on that that terminator type thing where it's like now I'm just, you know, the the, the badass heroine and it's a fight between myself and the aliens instead of Yeah. Now I'm you know, part the, alien and <laughs> <laughs> They didn't have to, but they did. But they did. Well, I don't know what it is about these like introductory editions of slasher franchises and those like those actors who would go on to be legendary actors, but Halloween had Jamie Lee Curtis, Friday yeah. the 13th had Kevin Bacon and a nightmare on Elm street had Johnny Depp. And 
unlike those other two, this is actually Depp's debut, TV or film. And I, I watched it again and I was like, man, I forgot how young he is in this. He looks like a toddler he in does. this film. He's like 10. And yeah. that that he would go on to be Captain Jack Sparrow. Okay. This is the same guy. And you know, he would go on to have roles in like private resort, platoon, um, handful of shorts and TV episodes, but that real breakout came on uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah. Where he was so problematic. Like as an actor, not as like his character, but as an actor. It's like he was just a show he didn't want to be on. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Did you ever follow that show? Oh yeah, I watched that show. So like only he well, there were a couple of people that were on there for like the duration, you know, he himself, Dustin Wynn, Holly Robinson, Pete. Um and, and I, I actually thought you were substantially younger than me. <laughs> so uh, um I thought you I'm never saw <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm I'm 40 as of June. So we're in the same ballpark. I, yeah. I, I can talk to you like a human. It's it's good. <laughs> like a person who knows. We'll at least know each other's dated references. Like 21 <laughs> Jump Street and L- Gilligan's Island. <laughs> when you said Gilligan's Island and then said, oh, it might be dated. I'm like, <laughs> dated to whom? <laughs> <laughs> Not to me. Not to me. But, you know, like Depp had this multi-year contract on Jump Street, right? And he did that because he thought it was going to flop. <laughs> and be done after a year and basically ironically he was the biggest reason that it didn't flop yeah. so you had Depp, Dustin Wynn, uh, Holly Robinson Pete who was the only one on the show by the way that was on every episode start to finish okay uh, Stephen Williams was on there um, and horror fans are going to remember Stephen Williams from Jason Goes to Hell uh, he had that line uh, when he, when somebody asked him what do you think of when I say the words Jason Voorhees? And his answer was, when I hear Jason Voorhees, I think of a little girl in a pink dress sticking a hot dog through a donut. And to this day, I don't know what the hell that means. I don't, I can't translate that. What does it mean, Shannon? What is it about sticking a hot dog through a donut? I don't know. I can't think of any reference in the movies. Is it to, I don't know, is is it to... I don't even know what the word is, but to give Jason some effeminate uh, description, I don't know what what it can mean. It's just an imagery that I can't really shake. I mean, (laughs) it's just, it's the last thing I probably think of when I think of Jason Voorhees. Well, he wants to show that he's a badass, okay? Because he's got his cowboy hat on and he's watching... uh, the the SWAT team destroy Jason, like blow his body up into a million parts. And then he's like just squatting down in the woods. He's like, I don't think so. And then he walks away. And then like at the end of the movie, when he comes into the scene in the final, uh, the the final fight, he says, Hey, you son of a bitch, remember me. And this is a guy that's never been in any Friday the 13th film. So we're all like, no, (laughs) we don't remember you. Who are you? Why do you know anything? And why did you get that knife? I don't know. I suspect he's the one who from 21 Jump Street, whose name I don't remember, who's the really tall guy who had longish hair than I think, like long. No, this is no, this is uh, I'm trying to think who you're thinking of. Um, the one who did you see the new one? The no. comedy remake of the movie. No, I, oh, I would have. I would have. I would have been angry. He did a cameo it. in it with Johnny Depp. 
Oh, that's a bummer. I guess I have to see it now. Yeah. I do like Jonah Hill and you know Channing Tatum's who he is. He was, I don't know. you know, yeah. He's gonna be Channing Tatum. <laughs> well, you know, like the thing about him, sometimes I get I, I don't say angry, it's just like it turns me off from wanting to see certain films when I know that certain actors are going to be in them. Okay. Nothing against Channing Tatum. I'm sure he's a fine person, fine actor. But when I saw the hateful eight, which happens to be like my second favorite um, Tarantino film. um, When I saw that Channing Tatum was in it, I was a little bit upset and it turned out that he only really had a part towards the end. It was a really small part. I don't even remember him being in it. So he's the guy that's under the floorboards waiting okay. the whole time. The okay. one that's there to rescue uh, Daisy. So it's easy to forget that he's in it because his part is so small, okay. um, which that, you know, makes it better. Uh, we only had to put up with, you know, Sam Jackson for the eighth time in a Tarantino <laughs> film, but he still did a great job. I love the film. I just told you it's my second favorite, right? But Stephen Williams is... Um, I think he's the only black guy in 21 Jump Street. Okay, I know. Okay. <laughs> he looked a little more mature than the other guys. Yeah, he was. Yeah, so um, great show. But you know who I actually thought was going to be the breakout from Jump Street? It was Richard Grieco. Now, he he was only yeah. there for like the last maybe season or two. He had a brief bust out. Like he was something in the 80s and then he just wasn't. Anymore. Yeah, or like the early 90s. I don't it was Please. yeah early 90s for him, but he, he was in a film called If Looks Could Kill. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I will say that is a top 10 B movie, if you want to call it a B movie. I don't even know if it made theaters. I was just too young to know at the time. Yeah. But it, it may have been a theater flick. Knowing that he was in it and he was like that breakout star, I thought he was going to – I thought Richard Grieco was going to be what Johnny Depp is today. Like have that level of, of of fame, yeah. And no, for I really think that we were seeing him more in stuff at first than Johnny Depp. If I if memory serves, you know, like I was see because first of all, I had of course a crush on like three Dustin Wynn and Johnny Depp and who didn't <laughs> and who Richard Grieco. So I covered. You had a pulse. You had a crush on him. That's right. <laughs> Pretty much. And so, yeah, I, so I remember watching movies because if it said Richard, Richard Grieco on it, I was going to watch it and they were all B flicks or whatever, but. Well, yeah, if looks could kill though, had USA uh, Today, USA, what is it? USA, the channel when it first came out, I think was playing. (laughs) USA, uh, I saw it first on HBO. I remember specifically, like there are maybe 10 flicks that I could probably sit down and name uh, if I had enough time that when we first got cable, actually it was a satellite. It was a huge satellite dish out in our backyard where if you change the, um, the, I guess the, the, the bracket of channels, you could look out back and see the dish, like you know, turn Yay. toward another galaxy. But yeah, if looks could kill, I found that on HBO. And I mean, it's basically Richard Grieco is a high school student about to graduate uh doesn't have enough credits he's got to retake french and if he doesn't retake french or if he doesn't go on this french field trip to france which is the weirdest punishment ever uh, (laughs) then if he goes he can get that credit and graduate so he does go and he gets mixed up with a spy who has the code name that is his actual name 
So Richard, uh, Michael Corbin is his name. And Michael Corbin is the code name, a la James Bond, of the agent. Uh, Linda Hunt, the little lady from one of the NCIS or CSIs or one of the other alphabet crime shows. Um, little bitty lady. She's kind of like today's uh, Zelda Rubenstein. But <laughs> she's, yeah, wonderful gotcha. lady. Uh, yeah, the, the little bitty lady was in it. She was great. But the whole cast was very strong, very much a, I mean, it was the quintessential 90s flake, though. And it's something that we all kind of, kind of loved because like we could see ourselves doing is like, I could, yeah, I could see myself like skiing and getting chased by some bad guys on jet skis. Of course. Yeah. Like was it gotcha or whatever that movie with Anthony Edwards is where he, Anthony ends up. Edwards. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Same <God>. thing though. <laughs> so Amanda Weiss plays Tina in this film and Tina yeah. is tasked with setting the tone Shannon for what we'd expect from this film and really the franchise ultimately uh, she suffers the first death, or at least the first meaningful death, uh, in her sleep, in bed, having committed the cardinal sin that you just don't commit in a horror film. Yep, she, she went lost to Pound Town, <laughs> lost the V card, went to Pound Town, downtown Pound Town, paid the price very quickly. She paid the price. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she did. He, Freddie, wasted no time. Atta- attacked in her dream, defying gravity, getting dragged across her own ceiling, ripped apart. Like there are a lot of first kills by the famed, you know, movie killers, but I don't think there are any as iconic as Tina's. What say you? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, she's being attacked by somebody invisible. And so that by itself was, that's how many times has that been done? So you can slash them, but it's somebody invisible slashing him with this, with poor, (laughs) poor guy just watching her go up onto the ceiling and flip and fight and do all this. So yeah, it's absolutely has to be one of the one of the best first kills that way to say, and here's what you're gonna see from here on out in this movie. Yes, and most important first kills, right? Yeah, most important first kills. And she sticks um, around through the movie, which we also don't see a lot of places because she's kind of haunting her best friend in a werewolf in London kind of. <laughs> or- well, you know, Nightmare really did introduce surrealism mm-hmm. to a whole new generation right whereas prior to nightmare like surrealistic films were i guess maybe the more artsy films you could say something you might find coming out of europe but yeah. like assuredly not in the slasher horror genre right and you know slashers were all about reality and the fear that there could be a crazed man around any street corner or backwoods locale and to get away from him, you just have to outthink him, which seems to only get done you know, far too late in the film. Right. And the kill count, you know, has reached, you know, the dozens. But Nightmare introduced a reality of bizarre appearances or uh, of normal articles or illogical happenings, dream sequences, uh, symbolism like the character might encounter and just like slapped it all in an already thriving genre of slashers. So in other words, Freddy's just built different. Yeah. Well, and it also melts. You don't even as the viewer necessarily know if you're in a dream sequence until something happens 
because they think they're awake and doing something right. And then all of a sudden this is happening and it's going to take you a minute to realize oh, they fell asleep when they did that thing. But it, it mixes that up on you so that you can't even sit there and comfortably, if you, the only way it would have been in comfort is the wrong word, but you can't see it coming. If you don't even know they've fallen asleep yet, they, they pull a switcheroo on you right there. They do. And you know, back in the day shows like the twilight zone and, um, Alfred Hitchcock presents like if, if you're presented with a dream sequence, hell, even the exorcist three did this. Um, you would see a dream sequence and maybe you'll see like the border of the screen is a little blurry, little blur, a little mess. Yeah. You're, you're walking through the clouds. You know, it's a dream, right? But not here. Like it's presented as the, the current reality. And when you see somebody wake up, it's like, I think people take this for, for granted watching 1984 films with 2022 goggles. Mm-hmm. And it's just completely unfair. You have to put yourself in the time that these films were made. And I realized that a lot of fans probably can't fathom watching a film where there weren't cell phones involved yeah. or, knowing what it's like to have to be in the house before the street lights came on because you probably never were out of the house. (laughs) So, I mean, this is a Mount Rushmore film to me, or at least franchise for the slasher genre. I know it's easy to say, you know, ask somebody like what's your Mount Rushmore of horror. And a lot of times people are just going to give you four slashers, but let's play that game. What is your Mount Rushmore of slashers? What is it? It's got to be Nightmare. It's got to be for one of those. One of those heads has to be Nightmare because it was the first, it wasn't the first horror movie I saw, not by far, but it was sure. the first slasher I saw. And it, it, you're just, there's something to, if you're in another kind of slasher, you have to go out into the woods and be partying, or you had to be at camp. You had to have been put in a position to be in danger. And I guess if you never do those things, yeah, if you never do those, everybody sleeps, (laughs) they don't necessarily sleep well, but everybody sleeps. And that's already an incredibly vulnerable place for people that there's the darkness and on its own, but sleeping, you're vulnerable. It's one of your, what, four most vulnerable times, right? Going to the bathroom, showering, having sex, sleeping, I guess would be the four I put out there. But so, and even the worst insomniacs sleep eventually. So there's no way to keep yourself safe. And I love that because Jason, especially that's about being out in the woods. That's about, you have to be in that situation for that to be scary necessarily, but sleeping in your own home and he can get you anywhere. You fall asleep on the school bus and school, Mm -hmm. you know, anywhere, everywhere that they were, were vulnerable as kids, he could show up there. And who has to sleep at school? <laughs> right. It, it, with Jason, you just don't go camping. Don't right. go to the woods. Don't Problem do the solved. things. Problem is solved. You'll never, you'll never meet. And really, but, just don't have sex in the woods. <laughs> For, that's, that, that's most the double of the people. Whammy. That's the double whammy. And I've, I don't know what the other rules were from Scream. I only really enjoyed the first one. But like, don't say I'll be right back. Don't have sex. And... I don't remember what the other rules were. Those were the, the main two. And Jason, he, he's got that 
supersonic hearing, he knows when you've said you'll be right back. That's and right. He knows when you're doing it in the woods and that's when you're going to get dead. But Freddie, he's got you because you're going to sleep. You can run all you want to, but you're going to sleep. And it really introduced, if you look at the 2010 version, you see some, uh, the one guy, especially popping pills left and right. That was something that I don't remember the original uh, going into much. No, not in the original. I'm trying, I think like in some of the sequels they tried, but we're talking at that point, what would have been caffeine pills and coffee, uh, you know, and although that makes me think of, and I think it's in dream warriors when Johnny Depp comes back and does the PSA that we were all used to at that time with the, this is your brain. This is your (laughs) fabulous. Oh God. You know, like when I was a kid, I was a naive child. Okay. Um, basically you'll remember this commercial, but there was one where somebody showed you an egg and he said, this is your brain. He cracks it, drops it in the frying pan and it starts frying, right? He said, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? My sister was cooking eggs in the kitchen. I dialed up my mom and I said, Hey, Julia's cooking drugs. (laughs) <laughs> you need to talk to her. I thought you were going to be like, she's cooking brains. <laughs> no, like she's cooking drugs and you need to talk to her. And my mom got her on the phone and my sister explained that I'm an idiot. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. Didn't get her in trouble. Cause she's like, what drugs are you cooking? What are you yeah, doing? Well, yeah, well that wouldn't be much of a question now because the answer would be meh, meh. not my sister, <laughs> yeah. but that, that's something that you would cook. Um, I don't think my sister's cooking meth. I, I would say not. Um, if she is, she better be sharing with the kids at school. She's a school teacher. But oh. um, <laughs> but hey, you know, Shannon, tell us, tell everybody before we get out of here where we can find your work. The easiest way, because I connect you to both the podcast and my books, is thewarriormuse.com, which is my website. And it's, I, I blog there, but I have appearance schedules on there. I have my publications, which is short stories and magazines and anthologies, but also my own books. So all of that's on there, super easy. And I I am, I think on all social media, I am under the Warrior Muse. It made it easy. <laughs> and we're going to make it even easier. We're going to throw these links into the episode bio to this podcast. So definitely check that out. Find Shannon's work. And uh, yeah, hit her up on the socials. Tell her you're enjoying her work. And uh, Shannon, as we ride off into the night, um, I'm glad you took some time to revisit A Nightmare on Elm Street with me. Uh, If you didn't watch, listeners, uh, it's free right now on Tubi. And Tubi itself is free. So take it all in now and show the young children while you're at it. They'll never misbehave again (laughs) if if, if you make the right threats. Or sleep. Or sleep. Yeah, they might not sleep either. But thank you all for joining us here on Slasher Sports Cinema, and may you all drink the blood of your enemies from the skulls of their children. (laughs) 